0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, whenever you feel frustrated in life, and whenever you look around and you say, what is going on here? Life is crazy. You have to kind of go back internally and just rationally ask yourself, well, where can I find meaning in my life? That, yeah. That's what I get out of your book. I think a lot of people sit there sipping their coffee, reading <laughs> the newspaper, and thinking, you know, I'm gonna be really active about climate change. Yeah. They come up with this artificial thing that's gonna provide meaning for them. Like what would you prescribe
1: about how you can find some meaning? Well, th- so this is a little bit of the paradox of hope that I talk about. Is that one of the things that generates hope for us is conflict. When you create a society that's devoid of serious conflict when nobody's life is threatened our brain naturally starts seeking conflict Mm. because that's the easiest way to generate hope you make this distinction between
0: the thinking brain Mm -hmm. and the feeling brain so the thinking brain can say intellectually i know i need to find hope i need to find meaning but i think it takes a lot of practice for that feeling brain to really sort of absorb this message and do it
1: oh yeah we're 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 all messed up (laughs) you know
0: Got Mark Manson wants to get on the podcast. You probably know him from The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It's a, a great book. Mark, we're going to get into your new book, which is Everything is, Fu- Everything is Fucked, A Book About Hope. You you kind of created the genre of, and I'm sure people have told you this, but now like every book on the bestseller list has the word either fuck or shit in it. <laughs> I'm you, a trendsetter. You're like the 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 fuck tire uh, genre <laughs> is all you. Um, and I'm sorry for using these words so much on the podcast, but that's the book. Is this su- subtle
1: or not? It's my it fault. Fuck. It's my fault.
0: Exactly. <laughs> if people just out of curiosity, this is a random thing. If people try to search for your book, uh-huh. can, do they have to do f? asterisk ck on amazon
1: uh i'm pretty sure fuck will get him to it
0: all right yeah and here, here, here's the other question amazon now keeps track of not only the best-selling books but the books that people read the most you know often you buy a book and you don't read it but you know on the kindle now amazon could see how many pages people read a book and your book is often at the near at or near the top of the books actually people read. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Like you're like out of the million books published last year, yours is in the top five of the ones people actually
1: read. I, I will say for like all the I guess accolades and achievements that the book has has had, that's probably one of the ones that feels the best. Because it's so it validates the writing. You know, yeah. it it tells you that it's like people get sucked into it and they want to keep going. So as but, a writer, that feels good. Like, Amazon also keeps
0: track of um, the number of highlights each passage gets. Yep. What's your most highlighted passage,
1: and how many highlights does it get? Oh, I haven't checked in, like, a year or two, but I think the last time I checked, it was, like, 10,000 or something like that. And what was the, what, what was the passage? Uh, it was something in the first chapter. I, I can't remember. It's funny, man, because it's it's—I don't—I've barely even looked at that book in, like, the last two years. Like, I, I don't know what I, it I is. I know the feeling, yeah. Yeah. You
0: just get tired of it. Like First, you had that article from your blog that just blew up and viral. Yeah. And uh, then you got the calls, hey, make a book out of this. And then it became... Huge. And you have, I'm gonna give you some compliments. You have a very authentic, raw writing style, like you don't give a fuck. <laughs> and it but it's very good because it's not just sort of you angrily lecturing people. Sure. You're telling stories. Yeah. And so in this book, everything is fucked, a book about hope. I really like how you tell all these interesting stories on each chapter. Like I would almost say, I'm gonna give you an exaggerated praise, but it's sort of correct. This is like a modern day. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, dude. <laughs> so I'm not saying you, were, you survived the Holocaust. His book is a timeless classic, which yeah. maybe this book will be too, but there's a, 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 this is like sort of a reminder. You know, whenever you feel frustrated in life and whenever you look around and you say, what is going on here? Life is crazy. You have to kind of go back internally and just rationally ask yourself, well, where can I
1: find meaning in my life? That, yeah. That's what I get out of your book. Absolutely. Well, it is a book about meaning. Um, you know, the, I, I, I kind of use the concept of hope, but really what hope is, is this idea that something in the future is, is important or worth living for. Um, and so much, a lot of the book kind of just investigates how our, how our psychology constructs these ideas of hope for ourselves, which gives us a sense of meaning.
0: A lot of it is, you know, I forgot who says the quote, Steve Cohen, my podcast producer yeah. is the quote machine. I'm but, Mar- Hey. <laughs> Have you met Steve yet? Yeah, we met him first time he's here. You know, so there's a quote uh, It's never the problem, it's your perception of the problem. Steve, the problem saying? isn't the problem, the problem is your perception of the problem. Who says okay. that quote? <laughs> I've heard different people say it Tony Robbins.
1: You never know these days with yeah. quotes. Yeah. Like <laughs> it could be, there's a whole, you can go down Google rabbit holes. Yeah. I liked, um, you said something like certainty is the, is the opposite of growth or something. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Certainty is the opposite of growth. Or as long as you're certain, you can't change. You can't grow,
0: which is also related to the concept of beginner's mind. Yes. You know, no matter how old you are, no matter how much of an expert you are, always get back to beginner's mind to find that initial glee of doing something, that initial curiosity, Mm -hmm. initial the sense that you can, of humility that you can keep on growing, no matter. But anyway, so you know meaning
1: yes what drove you to do this though uh well it's funny because so uh, i'd say two things happened between subtle art and writing this one um for, first you're I'll on say, my podcast twice i know that was very yeah important. well yeah. it was extremely life-changing both <laughs> times yes <laughs> uh but it's you know i always tell people that my books I see writing, and I think you, you you're the same way. I for me, writing is like a public form of therapy. You know, it's yeah. like it's how I sort through my shit, and I try to do it in a format that other people can read it and and hopefully get something out of it. So for me, the struggles that kind of led to to this book is two things. One uh, was subtle art came out in end of 2016. And it just it just blew the doors off of everything um, yeah. i think it's actually just heard yesterday it's uh it's past eight million copies now
0: that is unbelievable <laughs> which is
1: like because you know i can't think
0: of people i'm not going to say this in a bad way yeah but what i've noticed in general is that people don't i hate to say people don't read because that mean that makes it seem like people are getting less intelligent which is not true it's just that people do other things people yeah watch Ted talks, people listen to podcasts, people watch YouTube videos. So, so there's many more things for people to do. So I don't know that many nonfiction books like yours that really break out. You know, if you yeah. think of things like Freakonomics or the four hour work week yep. or, uh, Malcolm, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's books, those were written in the 2000s and they all sort of broke out in kind of the literary nonfiction or self-help kind of category to have millions of copies. I don't know any others other than yours after a certain time that has really sold millions of copies.
1: Yeah it's it's kind of like uh it only happens a few times a decade I think that a book is like this big um it's been number one in 13 countries which is also mind-blowing so all this stuff started happening in 2017 and uh you know and, and it's one of those things where it's You work your ass off for 10 years, you have all these dreams and hopes and ideas of like what you want your life to be. You know, in my mind, I was gonna work for 20, 30 years and just knock off all these kind of dreams that I had as an author. Uh, And subtle art just knocked them out in like three months, (laughs) you know? So suddenly I'm sitting around in 2017 and I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what to do anymore. And
0: did you feel this urge because you knew? that you could keep feeding this this I don't uh what do you call it not the monster that you created but you could just keep feeling feeding this enormous vacuum of interest in your in your stuff by just writing the same thing over oh, and over yeah. again.
1: Do you feel that urge? I didn't at all. Uh my publisher absolutely did. <laughs> so, you know, one of the first things my publisher said to me is like, how about Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck for Teens? How about Subtle Art of oh. Not Giving a Fuck for Parents, you know? Uh I was like, no, no, I'm not gonna do. Good for you. Yeah, I I don't want. I'm still young. I've got a lot of books in me. Like I don't want to get pigeonholed into into this brand. So all you kept was the fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the next book. Yeah, that was kind of the compromise. Yeah. Uh, was like, all right, I'll give I'll give you guys an F word in the title. Um, but yeah, so I I actually spent much of that year kind of just not knowing what to do with myself. Played a lot of video games. Took the wife on some trips. Uh, but it was strange because I, I actually was more depressed that year than I think any year since I was in college. What is it, what do you mean? Like, like, were you sad, depressed? Did you have,
0: were you not finding pleasure in things? Like, what was, were you anxious because you didn't know what to
1: do next? Like, what does it mean? So, this this is actually one of the things that I explained in, in the first chapter of the book is that a lot of people assume that depression is is sadness. And I think that's just because depression most often occurs when something tragic happens in our lives. Um, but really what depression is, is it's, it's not finding meaning in something. Like, you don't, it's when you enter this state where it's difficult to know what the point of doing anything is. Um... And so I, I reached that point, but it, it, it was really bizarre, because whereas most people come to a place of meaninglessness, through loss, you know, it's like a, a family member dies or they lose their job or whatever. Uh, I came to it by through like success, like astronomical success. I had all these dreams for my life. I had, I had visions of who I wanted to be as an author, what I was going to work the next 20 years for. And by achieving it so quickly, the, all those things were taken away from me, and so again, I kind of lost this sense of meaning in my life. Um, but it's a, a really weird thing because then you can't really tell talk to people about it because then you look like an asshole. Like they're like, "Dude, you just sold two million books. Like, what are you complaining about?" I'm like, "No, really. Like, I don't know why I should get out of bed in the morning." Um, so it was very disorienting and. Uh, it led me into researching a lot of these concepts and topics, these ideas of hope. Like you need something to hope for. You need something to look forward to. You need some vision of how your life can be better. Uh, And that wasn't clear for me at that time. Um, So that was kind of – that was the first thing that that informed this book. And the second thing that informed it is – I would hate—I don't want to, you know, I don't think any, either of us wants to talk about politics. But um, the 2016 election, regardless of who who you prefer, I think everybody kind of agrees that the 2016 election, like, broke the internet. Like, it. 2016 was the year that everybody was like, oh, wait, the internet makes some things really bad. Um, hey, yeah, and just to add to that, I think that was
0: the first time we realized, you know, oh— I hate people yeah. on the internet <laughs> because of their beliefs. We're all in our like air conditioned homes yeah. with our minivans parked outside and we could, we all have clean water and everything's great. But now
1: I hate people yep. on the internet. That I've never met, right. I'm never going to meet. And yeah, they're evil and they're pieces of shit. And so it, it was such an ugly that election was just so ugly for everybody. Um, and that that ugliness has continued over the years and one thing that was fascinating for me when I was traveling around the world promoting subtle art was I noticed that this was happening all over, and it was funny actually because usually the the countries that my book was number one in they had some sort of political crisis going on uh and they had the same polarization and they had the same like social media frenzy of just people being hysterical and hating each other um and I was like, wow, like something really, you know, people like to 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 dogpile on Facebook and and you know, there's all sorts of scapegoats, but but it really got me thinking that there is something fundamentally about fundamentally different about this technology and the way it affects us psychologically. And it's not necessarily like, you know, it's not necessarily like, oh, kids who use their phones too much like get depressed. Like I think there's it changes the way we process meaning in our lives uh and it makes it more difficult to find hope like you said it's like we're all sitting in an air-conditioned room there are minivans outside sitting there on our phones hating people that we don't even know and there's so there's such an avalanche of information coming into our minds that we don't really that vision of what the hope for gets muddied in and, and and becomes convoluted yeah and, and, you know and it, it
0: reminds me like at least At least once a day, I have to remind myself, don't argue with this person on the internet. (laughs) Like someone will say something, usually about me, or about something I've done, or something I've said, or tweeted, or Facebook, and they'll say something that's either wrong, or insulting, or rude, and I don't know them. They're like a complete stranger. If there was no internet, I would never know they existed. And yet I like hit the reply button, and I'm about... Every day, I'm about to reply. My hands are over the keyboard, and I have to say to myself, "No, this is not going to add to my life." But I, but it's, but it's weird. Even though knowing that, I still have to remind myself of that
1: every day. Yeah. Well, and you know what's crazy too is that if you actually like when I go out and do events, and I actually meet these people, we're nice to each other. Like it, it's, I've run into people in person at events who are like, "I really disagree with this part of your book," or I. I have these different beliefs and they challenge me on stuff and we're actually like super respectful to each other and we get along fine. Uh, there's just something about the medium that uh, I think oversimplifies or overcompresses compresses our empathy, our, like, our ability to, to, to connect with each other. I think one thing I say in the book is that all the techno- technological innovation of the last couple decades, we've basically traded out quality of connection for quantity of connection. Uh, and hmm. really it's, we, it's quality of connection that, that gives our lives a sense of meaning. It's, it's, we need intimacy. We need trust. Um, and for whatever reason, the internet and the the media landscape it creates, uh, break those things down.
0: I wonder if it's, you know, people say something like, you know, 93% of communication is, and I don't know how they get these percentages, but 93%? Percent of communications is, is is nonverbal. Yeah, and so when you throw in the internet, which is not even verbal but just text, maybe you're missing out 98 percent of communication, and that's why there's so little kind of emotional or quality content yep. to it. uh Add in the anonymity, and you know, in many cases, uh I w- and then add in emojis. So if somebody, <laughs> if somebody, di- like you, your kind of emotions are determined a little bit. It, it, by the language you use, which is why, you know, when when Mao took over China and it became yeah. communist China, he would drastically limit the words you can use. So it would change the way you think about things. And that's how he would, you know, suppress people and have control. And emojis, we've, like, voluntarily limited our language and our emotional yeah. responses. And I, I always think, like, you know, you it's always weird. Like, you, you see these Facebook posts, like, oh, my my grandma, my Bubby died. She was 97 years old. She lived such a great life. I miss her so much. And, I'm again, I'm like reaching for the sad emoji. Like, and I have to remind myself (laughs) that's not a normal response. Like, you know, so, you know, often I'll try to actually either write an email, like I'm really sorry for your loss, but I'm also tempted to say to actually comment like, you know i knew her she deserved it yeah like just something (laughs) just to take yourself out of the
1: emoji like gut response it's funny because i I actually just recently wrote an article called um is nobody safe from the bullshit and uh i I used a bunch of examples from just people in my life that i know of, of situations like that like i had a friend who um her father was like really religious and all he did is he he went on Facebook. You know, he's one of these old guys who posts on Facebook twice a year. And uh, it was Easter. And so he he went online. He went on Facebook and he was like, hey, everybody, I just want to wish everybody a happy Easter God bless you all. <laughs> and, like, the first comment was, like, was, like, oh, yeah, promoting a religion that's, like, slaughtered millions and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and she was, like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it's just, the, my dad's the sweetest old man, and he's he just loves Easter, and he just wanted to say happy Easter. And, and it's, like... Well, he learned his last Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's, like, he'll never be on Facebook again. But it it's insane, like, how... It, there's some weird combination of like dehumanization of of the person on the other side the ease of like the lack of consequences of just being a dick you know you would never say that to somebody's face like right. it, it, even if but you, it
0: happens every day all day long like yeah. million, like this there, like i i mean i can think of an example from an hour ago uh you know i had an email where um, Oh, if you don't like my daily email, you can opt in for my weekly email. Mm-hmm. And so I just saw, cause you see, you know, you click on notifications. You see every time you're mentioned on Twitter and someone wrote back, uh, I bet you're not surprised. I didn't even opt in for your weekly email and I'm like. I don't even know who you are. (laughs) Like, and I look. He's like a three follower. He has. He is nobody to me. And like, he's acting like we have this big relationship. Now (laughs) now I'm going to be angry at him, which I was actually. Yeah, right. (laughs) So it's it's
1: so bizarre. I,
0: I see. Also, there's like this evolution in the writing. In this one, I think you you did that same self exploration, and then you added also all these other stories of heroism and meaning and so on. And I feel like it's an evolution as a writer where you're kind of interweaving yep. your own story with all these other intense stories that I didn't know about from history. And they were a lot, there was a lot of great storytelling in this.
1: Do, do yeah. you feel you evolved as a writer for this? Absolutely. And, it, and it's funny kind of tying that into, you know, a question I'm getting a lot now is how were, did you feel pressure to top subtle art? Or like, did you feel a lot of pressure to to, to mimic, you know, just... Kind of like take the same style and tone and yeah that so that actually there was a lot of pressure and you know, i don't think you did mimic the tone. no no and it's eventually what what i decided i i kind of agonized about it but i realized i'm like you know what things like subtle art happen once a decade in publishing like it just let it go it's not going to happen again you know write a book that you're proud of write a book that you think is better and then fuck the sales And so that's what I did, and 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 I feel like I did it. I feel like I became a better writer. I think it's more mature. It's more intellectual, uh, which is something else I I was kind of going for, Um, and I'm really proud of it.
0: Yeah, I thought I thought it was great. So many, you know, each chapter had so many stories. Like it was almost like uh, a text on a history of philosophy. Also, yeah. Not, and I don't mean text in a bad way. Because cause it's it's the Mark Manson version sure. of the history of philosophy. <laughs> but I learned all these. I'm, I wasn't a philosophy major. I haven't really read a lot of philosophy. I learned about all these, like, historical philosophers in the context of the points you were trying to make from your own life. And it was really fascinating, like, all the stuff about Kant, Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, I don't know how to yeah, say his name. Yeah, Nietzsche. And, um, uh, you know, and then there were some things that I outlined. Uh, you know, you have this story of Pilecki, the guy who, you know, essentially breaks into auschwitz escape you know tries to save everybody escapes from auschwitz when he realizes he can't and you you have this one line uh being heroic is the ability to conjure hope where there is none and i think that's kind of a theme of
1: a central theme of the book Mm -hmm. maybe you can yeah it, it comes back to that it comes back to the franco thing i mean that that need to create meaning in your life uh and that when you don't have that vision of some better future of something to hope for, uh, you just feel lost, and, and and everything begins to feel meaningless. And so, it's almost a skill to be able to take your situation and find something, find hope in it somehow, because that hope is is what's going to generate the sense of meaning.
0: And how do you how do you do that? Because I think it. And again, you make this distinction between the thinking brain mm-hmm. and the feeling brain so the thinking brain can say intellectually i know i need to find hope i need yeah. to find meaning but i think it takes a lot of practice for that feeling brain to really sort of absorb this message and and do
1: it oh yeah we're 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 all messed up <laughs> you know it's it's um it's a long process because what we don't realize you know live like you said intellectually we understand that I lack meaning in my life, but ultimately, feeling a sense of meaning or, or, or having a sense of hope in your life, it is—it's an emotional project. Uh, you can't like think yourself to um, importance. You have to like feel importance, and so that—that's the difficult part. That's the tricky part. And if, and if our emotional brain or our unconscious or whatever you want to call it. Is bogged down with all sorts of baggage and trauma and whatnot. It makes it even harder. So a lot of, a lot of kind of producing these these visions of hope for ourselves is about resolving, um, a lot of a lot of our assumptions and then also a lot of like our emotional baggage.
0: But 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 also I think, and and this kind of is an extension of what you're saying when you, when you make the distinction between the thinking brain and the feeling brain thoughts aren't going to really do anything for you. Like they're they're sort of invisible and you could just sit here and do nothing but think a lot. Yeah. And so even in this quote, you know, and in the story of Pilecki is a good example. When you say, you know, being heroic is the ability to conjure hope where there is none. I think there's an additional part there which says, you know, not only conjure hope where there is none, but actually then take action based on that. So the story you mentioned, Pilecki, he breaks into Auschwitz you know he takes he's proactive he takes action because the other way of being a hero is to being a hero is to be in a bad situation and find your way out he was not in Auschwitz he wasn't in the worst situation he he took this extreme action
1: and that made him a hero yeah it's he's I've been wanting to write about him for years because and I, I think I even say in the book that his story is the most heroic thing I've ever come across in my life. So people who aren't, I'll give like the quick 30-second version. He he was a Polish soldier uh, when Poland was invaded in World War II by the Soviets and the Nazis at the same time. Um, He helped start an underground guerrilla fighter network. And as part of that network, um, they wanted to infiltrate Auschwitz. And they didn't know what Auschwitz was at the time. They, They actually thought it was a, well, it was a prisoner of war camp. At first. So there was a bunch of Polish soldiers there. So the idea was like, if we can sneak in the Auschwitz, break a bunch of these Polish soldiers out, you know, we can get a lot more men fighting back against the Nazis. So Poleski snuck in successfully, uh, got there and was like, Holy crap, like this is way worse than anybody could have imagined. So he was there during the Holocaust and he actually organized espionage networks to get messages out, to get supplies in. How was he able to do that without getting caught? It's, it's MacGyver type stuff. So like the, the messaging system, he somehow, uh, he would sneak um, like small paper notes into the lining of the linens in the laundry baskets. Because apparently the laundry was done outside of Auschwitz. So he would get notes into the the linens, and then people at the laundromat outside in the town would pull them out and then pass them on to to whoever in the Polish military. Um, so he was the first person to alert the world to the Holocaust. He 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 got intelligence out, and it eventually worked its way to London, like 1942. And the crazy thing is, is that every step along the chain of command, when they when the intelligence came in they were like, oh, this guy's exaggerating. Like, that that, that can't be happening. Tens of thousands of Jews a day? No, that's not happening. That's too many. Um, so nobody took him seriously. And then by 1944, he, uh, he realized that he needed to, to get out. And so he's one of, I think, only 44 people ever escaped the concentration camp. So he's the only person who's ever willingly gone to a concentration camp. And he's one of forty-four people who successfully escaped a concentration camp. So
0: so but that's the sort of situation where deep down he had this meaning that he he discovered for himself that he knew he had to act on. I think a lot of people sit there in their in again, in their, you know, sipping their coffee, reading <laughs> the newspaper, uh, and thinking, you know, I'm gonna be really active about climate change. And yeah. they, they come up with this artificial thing that's gonna provide meaning for them. Like what what would you prescribe? Uh, if you were going to be prescriptive about how you can kind of like shuffle around in your internal mess and and find some meaning well th- so this
1: is a little bit of the paradox of hope it, that I talk about is that one of the things that generates hope for us is conflict so it was actually easy for paleski to find meaning and hope because it, it, he either did that or he died you know it's he had he had no choice um by having, by feeling as though we're attacked by something, it immediately gives us something to hope for.
0: In your case, when you were feeling depressed over your success, which by the way, you don't have to feel guilty about, there was suddenly that, that, that's the paradox of success too, sure. is that. There, you always feel like you need more of something, and that's just being human. Yeah. And um, uh, it has nothing to do with money or goals or whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, was that the conflict that that drove you to do this research and start writing this book? Well,
1: so I'm going to tie it in a, in a different way. I'm going to bring it back to the social media thing. I think one of the things I, I talk about is that when you create a society that's devoid of serious conflict, when nobody's life is threatened, when— Everything you know, we're all sitting in air conditioners with minivans. Uh, our brain naturally starts seeking conflict because mm. that's the easiest way to generate hope. Um, to bring it back to my personal situation, you know, I, I, I don't think I necessarily went looking for conflict, but it's just I rediscovered what I'm passionate about, which is essentially analyzing and digging into a lot of human psychological tendencies. Um, and then explaining them. That's that's just always what I've loved. It's what I get super excited about. So for me, this, you know, getting all messed up about this stuff gave me an opportunity to go learn about it and discover like, what was my brain doing? Why was it doing, doing that? And how could this help other people?
0: And, and I think this underlines an important point, which is that everything is content. Like yes. if you, you know, let's say you're a, an alcoholic and you black out and you wake up on the street and someone's peeing on you, you can either think, gosh, things can't get any worse, or you can think,
1: this is content. It'd be a great stand-up routine. Yeah,
0: this is, or this is a story where you have to like figure your way out how to have yeah. a better life. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. it's rock it could,
1: bottom. It could be your rock bottom, exactly. Right. I mean, that's, so When back to the thinking and feeling brain, even though, as you pointed out, our feeling brain gets to decide when we feel motivated and when we don't our thinking brain superpower is that it gets to decide what our experiences mean, what they signify. So, you know, yeah, you get peed on by a homeless guy, you're going to feel awful, and your your thinking brain's immediate impulse is going, you know, probably be self-loathing, like, oh, my God, look how awful my life is. But you're you always have that opportunity to rewrite the meaning of your experiences, to say, like, you know what? this is probably rock bottom so let's say someone's not in rock bottom and not at
0: this peak of success where they don't know what to do next let's say someone's driving into work for the 30th year in a row sure and there's kind of this just simmering low level depression like Mm -hmm. oh i don't really like my boss but i'm four years away from retiring or 15 years away from retiring and where what how do they start to you know they have three kids, mortgage, they don't want to take too many chances.
1: what's what's kind of a next step or two for them? Well what you're describing is is a lack of hope. I mean if you if you're in a dead-end job for 30 years, the reason it feels like a dead-end job is because you don't see any positive future out of it. Um, you know the the trick is then to find what is something that you can hope for and and you don't have to you know a lot of people, they'll get their hope from their family. Uh, they'll get their hope from their church. They'll get their hope from uh, their hobbies. Uh, you know, and so the job just kind of becomes a means to an end. But if you're not getting hope anywhere, you know, it's like if you got a dead-end job and your kids don't want to talk to you and you don't have any hobbies and your friends are lame, like then then it be- starts to become a very dark place that's hard to get out of. So in terms of like finding hope um, – it's like you said it's you have to like get out there and try something different you have to take some sort of risk even if it's not like a major risk but it, it could be something as simple as trying a new hobby you know t- putting yourself out there p- picking up the phone calling your kids being like hey we never talk like I wish we would talk more often it's gonna hurt but like those are the things that you have to do that to give you that opportunity of, of improving I mean again that's the paradoxical thing is that It's by experiencing pain that gives us something to hope for, and that that hope gives our life a sense of meaning. It's interesting because people usually think, oh, the goal is to be
0: happier and happier and happier, but that's almost the opposite of what's going to make you happy because what you're describing is you have to sort of get out of your comfort zone, and by definition, the comfort zone is where you're comfortable. Yeah. Outside of the comfort zone is where you're not happy and where you're uncomfortable. So like you say, it's gonna hurt sometimes. Yes, But that's how you you punch your way through to find a bigger comfort zone and to find other things where where you might find hope or meaning. Yeah, it's, it's pain.
1: We need some amount of pain in our lives to give us a sense of value and importance. Um, Because it's the thing that makes our life feel meaningful and important is the idea that we've sacrificed for something. So if you're never sacrificing, if you're never giving anything up, if you're just feeling great all the time, uh, it very quickly feels meaningless and pointless because you haven't sacrificed for anything. Uh, There's no, you know, if if you suddenly died, there's no evidence that you, you know, you were here, that you did anything impactful or meaningful. Uh, So it's a very, it's a counterintuitive thing. Um, and I think so much of our culture today revolves around increasing comfort and an increasing pleasantness um, that we're actually robbing ourselves of these opportunities to generate meaning.
0: Yeah, so what do you think will happen in a future where, you know, even more than ever, all of our needs are basically satisfied? And, you know, I, I think it was in your book or some, If not this book, I apologize. Some book I've read (laughs) recently, where and but I'm pretty sure it's a book. Loneliness, you you know, even though we have everything, loneliness is is higher than ever in the United States. Like people say they're lonely, greater than fifty percent of people say they're lonely. Yes,
1: yeah. Uh, So it's funny the 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 last chapter in the book, I kind of go on this like wild, fantasy ridden rant about AI and what's going to happen. Like if we can cure all of our pain. I actually think the argument I make in, in my book is that, you know, this is everything we're describing about the necessity of conflict uh, to generate hope, the necessity of pain to generate a sense of value and meaning in our life. Like, this is not a bug of our psychology, it's a feature. Like, we evolve this way because it's, it's this constant cycle of finding something to hope for, pursuing it, fighting for it. Uh, and then feeling, struggling and feeling pain throughout the process. Like that is what has gotten our species to like where it is today. Um, So I kind of go on this crazy little thing where I say like, you know, one day the AI is going to take over and we're all going to be living in the cloud and everything's going to be amazing. Uh, But I don't think, I don't, unless we like physically start altering our neurology, um, like we're not, going to there's never going to be a state of like pure bliss like absolutely internal happiness like it's whatever reality morphs into there's going to continue to be that cycle of hope conflict pain sacrifice meaning and it's just going to keep going and going and going
0: so you would say so so like after people read this books read all the stories read the different philosophies read your journey maybe the first step is to start thinking of little ways it's kind of what's going to make you a little uncomfortable but you want to do like what would be some a first exercise or a second
1: exercise well i think the the first the important thing is to actually do something <laughs> you know it's it's like you said it's you can sit around on the couch all day and worry about climate change and read a bunch of articles and post angry tweets but like get up go volunteer somewhere like go clean up a riverbed go go organize fundraisers you know it, it's so much of our emotional state is attached to our behavior and we don't realize because we're so intellectually stimulated by the technology we don't realize how sedentary uh, our bodies have become and so if we're not actually out there face to face looking at somebody like hey man let's clean this shit up like let's the, our neighborhood's going to be a little bit better because we spend an hour doing that like that is what actually gives g- it, it it gives us sustenance psych- psych- psychologically
0: and it's not just the doing something like cleaning up the community because okay that's great sure picking up some garbage in the street it cleans the community makes makes it a little better but you're not you're making a small dent in mm-hmm. the general well-being in the community but you're connecting with other people face-to-face. Yes. And I think that's who, who are like-minded and or maybe even different-minded and you learn from them. And I think that's the real benefit is, is kind of breaking out of who you're in contact with solving
1: that loneliness issue. Yeah. I, I also think I think the another side effect of of kind of the internet and everything is, is I think maybe we think too globally now. Mm. Um, you know, it's good to understand everything on a global level, but If we're not, it it also makes us feel disempowered. You know, it's like, what the hell am I going to do? You know, China's not doing anything, so what the hell am I going to do? Whereas, if you focus more locally and you focus about uh, on the people around you, um, it's much easier to see the impact you're having, see the value in your in your sacrifices, and. Create a healthy sense of hope.
0: I totally agree, and I also think that's a good way to practice in small and daily ways. This idea of trying to find meaning and learning what the meaning is for you. Yeah. Um. So I just want to add also that, uh, your your fi- your notes at the end. Yeah. Are a lot of times I kind of skip the notes. Uh oh, yeah. You know, but I noticed you're you're writing a lot of uh, like you know. You you were quoting a lot of things, and and so I read through the notes. These notes are just as valuable as reading the book. Like you put a lot of thought into writing <laughs> yeah. the notes, so I encourage people to read that. I encourage people to read the book. Everything is fucked. A book without a, a book about hope. I was about to say a book without hope by Mark Manson. Um, but uh, what what's your next project?
1: I'm doing uh, Will Smith's book. He, so he's doing like a, an autobiography or whatever he is. Yeah, we're doing a memoir. It's like probably like two thirds memoir, one third. Self-help, life mm-hmm. advice. And how did you get that? Like he called you like, hey, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. I mean, it, I guess in in Will Smith world, it was the equivalent of calling me, being like, hey, Mark, what's up? But it, it involved me like going through six different gatekeepers over six months and then finally getting to meet him in person. And
0: him reaching to you or are you trying to reach to him? His
1: team reached out to me. Oh, okay, great. And uh, was that like, oh my gosh, Will Smith reached out to me. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was funny. I feel like I, I kind of kept my cool. Um, until I met him, and then when I met him, I was like, oh my God, it's the Fresh Prince. <laughs> and and it, he strikes me as someone like when you meet him, like his charisma
0: must be enormous. Like, oh my were God. you in
1: this just like charisma zone? He is the most charismatic person I've ever been around. Like, not a close second. If you were to sum up
0: in like one line, what is kind of, other than like just natural talent or whatever, what, what, what do you think he does that kind of catapults him above the rest in terms of charisma?
1: Well, I, I'll tell you, this, and this will serve as a little bit of a teaser for the book. So when I first met him, I, I, I spent about a, a week with him. And it was it was really just about us getting to know each other and hanging out and talking. And then at the end of the week, we we would see if there was like a, a good book idea. And so I spent like three days with him. And the thing I noticed about him, and this is what I ended up telling him, is I said, look, like, you're a smart guy. You're obviously super successful you've had a very interesting life. But the thing that you are like 99.99999 percentile is emotional intelligence. Like his ability to sense what people in the room are feeling and react and react fluidly without awkwardness and making everybody feel included and feel like comfortable and make everybody laugh. Like it's something that I've never seen before on that level. And To him, it's just it's just how he is, and 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 I know, (laughs) and I know
0: we have a hard stop, and I know you'll 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 come back on the podcast when that project's closer, and we'll we'll talk about it. But can you give one example where, like, because I could think of people who
1: could do that, but give one example where it was like above and beyond. So, for instance, he he was here in New York last year, and uh, because his son Jaden was at playing at MSG. and so we all we all went out to dinner. There was about 15 of us went out to dinner. And it was me, me, him, uh, his son, Jaden, and then like probably like 10 kind of random people, people in the recording industry, people on his team, whatever. And nobody really knew each other. And there was this kind of unspoken awkwardness because he's Will Smith. He's sitting at the table. He's paying for everything. And we're, there's just like 10 or 15 of us just hanging out like – what do we say what do we do like people were nervous and he just took control of the situation and he was like hey we're going to play a game we're going to play we're going to play the three wishes game and we're going to go around the table and we're going to talk about each other's wishes and he just he made every single individual feel included and he engaged every single person you know one on one and it and it just turned into this beautiful 2 hour conversation and afterwards i realized i was like Wow, like he knew he had to do that. Like he knew if he didn't do that, it was going to be an awkward dinner mm. and people were going to feel uncomfortable around him. And so he took it upon himself to to organize a conversation and not put make himself the center of the conversation but make each individual feel special um so that everybody enjoyed their night. And it and it again, it's so it's not premeditated like it's just it's so natural to him. Like he just senses it in people and he and he knows what he needs to say to like make them feel comfortable and, and, and feel good. So we'll make that the starting point of our next podcast when that <laughs> book gets
0: closer to coming out. But Everything is Fucked, a book about hope by Mark Manson. When's this book coming out? May 14th. May 14th. It's a really great book. It was a page turner and I learned a lot, which I can't say about every single book. So- Thanks once again, Mark, for coming on the podcast, and uh, I look forward to the next
1: time. Thanks, James. Always a pleasure.